Good morning, everyone. Um, it's nice to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Simon. Uh, my family and I have been coming to Reconcile for almost four years. Um, we moved to Greenville four years ago, which is crazy because, like, I'm at the age right now where when I say, like, oh, that was, like, three years ago, I'm talking about, like, 2003. So it feels a little weird to say that we've been here for, for four years, but um, it's been a true blessing to be a part of this church and this community. Um, Pastor Will's not here today. Um, so from time to time, he asked me to step in and preach, and so um, I'm happy to do that. So we are going to work, we've been working through the book of Romans on and off, and so today I have the pleasure of preaching through Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. It's a long and difficult passage, so we'll, we'll try to get through that here. Um, so I'm going to read to us, uh, read for us um, this passage, and so if you, if you have it, um, yeah. If you have a great, follow along with me. If not, I think it'll be on the screen. Yeah. Um, so we'll be reading out of the CSB uh, version. Romans chapter 11, verse 11 to verse 36. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgressions bring riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my, mystery, my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first roots are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild, tree, wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. 
Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to be the glory forever. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is the whole counsel of God, um, that we don't get to, to pick parts that we love and skip things that are difficult or skip things that we don't like. Um, thank you that you've given us all that we need and all that you have to say to us through your Bible, through your scriptures. So God, I just pray today, um, as this word is preached, it would be as if we are hearing from you. I pray that you would do the transformative work in our hearts and you would do the work to, to turn our hearts of stone to a heart of flesh. Help us to love you and serve you and be moved closer to you and be drawn more into your likeness, Jesus, as we listen to this word and are changed by it. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. So as I was working through this passage this week, I found myself in a position that I'm not typically in. Um, Usually when, when, when preaching, one of the goals is sort of to convey the truth of God as it applies directly to, to you, the listener, right? Um, so we'll do some of that today. But um, in this passage today, they're, they're, it sort of forced me to take a position on something that a lot of scholars and theologians sort of have different positions on, they often debate on. So I, also, I actually felt very much like I was back in seminary when I was working through this passage. I was like, being like, oh, I have to like convey like a truth that like some people might disagree on. Um, so, uh, but as a role of the preacher, it's to convey the truth of scripture as I feel God has led me. So after, after a lot of prayer, after a lot of study, after a lot of research, we'll talk about this passage sort of in the high level of like what Paul is trying to say as a big picture. And then what he, uh, and specifically what he's saying about the, Israel, the nation of Israel specifically and then after that, we'll talk through what this passage and all of those, that big, that big movement means for us. Um, so the first part of this might feel a little bit academic, um, but I hope that you'll tra track with me for a while till, till we get to the real implications and, and the, the, uh, the takeaways that we can have for us as God's people. Does that sound all right? Yes. Cool. So in this passage, um, what I believe Paul is arguing for is that one day, after God has worked his plan of salvation among the Gentiles, that he will bring and spend his time bringing many from the nation of Israel back into the fold of God. That Paul is actively saying that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, God will turn his attention again to the Israelites and bring salvation to the Jewish people. Right? And so I want to sort of walk through uh, three movements here that sort of... Um, sort of convince, hopefully will convince you of this truth. One in verse 11, it says, Paul, he says, I asked then, have they stumbled so as to fall? And Paul says, absolutely not. So in all of Romans, Romans has been a really challenging book. I'm sure as you've read it on your own or as you've been tracking with us in the sermon series, it's, it's been a little bit difficult. But one of the things that Rome, uh, Paul does is he argues about the history of Israel, the history of Israel in, in regards to God's plan of salvation and in the future of Israel. And so this particular passage, he's talking about the future of Israel. And 
one of Paul's big, big source uh, plot lines is that Israel's rejection of, of Jesus as the Messiah was actually the means to bring salvation to the Gentiles. So Israelites failed in seeing Jesus for who he really was. And because of that, and through the persecution of the, of the Jews who believed, Christianity spread to a non-Israelite context. Right? And so what Paul is saying here is he pivots and says, well, did the Israelites fail to the degree that they fell and that the story is over for them? And so what he, Paul is saying is that the Israelites have stumbled, but they haven't stumbled as far enough to fall, if that makes sense, right? So stumble is their rejection, but the story is not over for them. They haven't, quote unquote, fallen over, is what Paul is trying to argue, right? And the other thing that I want to convey here is that like, Paul is not, is not using the term all Israel as sort of this like spiritual Israel. Like, I truly believe that as working through this passage, he's talking about actual Israelites, Right? And the reason why I say this is because with it, throughout the passage, um, the natural reading is that he's talking about the nation of Israel. And when he uses the words Gentiles, he actually means like non, non-Jewish people. Right? So um, if you read verse, uh, like just to, just to clarify, like God, like in the scriptures, you can use the word Israel to, to sort of be the spiritual metaphorical people of God. I'm, I'm not saying that God doesn't do that. But in this passage, specifically, I believe Paul is, when he says Israel, he means the nation of Israel, the people group of Israel. In 25b, he says, A partial hardening has come upon, Israelites, upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So as I said before, in verse 25, the natural reading of this, the way Paul uses Israel and Gentiles, seems to mean ethnic Jews versus non-ethnic Jews, right? So it wouldn't make sense then that all of a sudden he flips his meaning of Israel to mean, oh, the people of God in general versus like Gentiles who are like people that are not saved. So when you read this passage, there's a consistent thread of like that, this parallelism between Israel meaning Israel, Gentiles meaning Gentiles, and not a flip-flop meaning of like Israel being Israel and then later Israel being the saved people, if that makes sense, right? But also one, one, thing, one more thing I want to clarify here is that all Israel doesn't actually mean every ethnic Jew, right? The whole argument of Romans is that salvation is, through, is not through ethnic identity or any work, but actually like, the main drive of Romans is to clearly articulate that the gospel message of salvation comes by grace through faith. So what, he, what, Paul is not say, what Paul isn't saying is all Jewish people will be saved. What I believe he's saying is that, that God will turn his attention to Israel just as salvation has come to the Gentiles and not all Gentiles are saved. Salvation will come to the Israelites in, in this large scale, but not all Israel will be saved. And then one last thing I'll say about this is that God's faithfulness to Gentiles actually loses weight if God is not faithful to Israel. Right? So when we see in verse 28, we say, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. And get 29, since God's gracious gifts and calling 
are irrevocable. There's a sense that like God has always in the Old Testament promised faithfulness to Israel. That God will always be faithful to his people. How can we as Gentiles say that God is faithful if he no longer is faithful to Israel? For Paul, that argument doesn't make sense. God can be faithful to, to us because he is faithful to his original called people of God, the nation of Israel. Right? So that's, that's the whole big overarching message in this text. So thank you for sticking with that part of it. Um, I know it's a little bit difficult, but what I also want to do is that I don't want to like just give you like, here's an argument. Let's walk away and just think about that for a while. I want us to be able to sit down in this passion and say like, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and for me who fall into this category of Gentile? All right, so um, I want to just point out four observations in this passage and hopefully um, we'll leave here encouraged, not just with like a better understanding of this argument, right? Right, so the first thing is this, that no one can stop God's plan of salvation. No one can stop God's plan of salvation. If you read verse 11, Paul says, I asked, then have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. And then it says, on the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So Israel's rejection of, of God was not God's plan failing, but it was actually God's plan being executed. Do you see that? Right? The Jews were supposed to be the people of God, and I mentioned this before, and they as a whole rejected Israel, uh, Jesus as the Messiah. And so God used that very means. At the day of Pentecost, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. A great persecution came in Jerusalem, and it scattered all the believers. And essentially it says... As they went and as they scattered, they preached the gospel as they went. God used the very rejection of Israel to actually call more people into the household of God. Right? So it's not that his plan is a failure, but that he could actually use failure to execute his plan. God's people, God has the ability to use people's sin for greater, greater works. And it's this idea that like not even the sinfulness of man can thwart God's plans. Right? And so I want to just give you a biblical example of this. Back in the Old Testament, Jacob had 12 sons, and Jacob loved his youngest son, Joseph, the, the most. The second youngest, Joseph the most. His other brothers were supremely jealous, and so what they do is they, they plan to kill Joseph. But as they're planning to do that, they meet um, some, some foreigners, and then they sell Joseph away into slavery. And then they tell Jacob, his dad, that Joseph has died. And Jacob, of course, loses it because it was his favorite son. But what exactly happens with Joseph? Joseph then goes to Egypt. A great famine hits the land. Jacob's family is basically in jeopardy of being wiped out because of this famine. Joseph rises to second in power in Egypt. And ultimately, Joseph is the one that is able to bring all of Israel or Jacob's descendants to Egypt where Joseph implored Pharaoh to like save storehouses for this famine that's coming. And ultimately, God uses the sin of Joseph's brothers to bring salvation to his people. So as we've gone through Romans, We've consistently hit on this theme 
that God is going to save people. It doesn't matter if you fall, uh, fail, fail in your life, if you sin, if people don't do exactly what God intends for them to do, God is going to save people. That's just been a, a theme of this book. But what I want to say here too, is like just make a clear, clear distinction here. God being able to use failure and sin to execute his plan is not an excuse to sin, right? It's not to be like, oh, God can, you know, use my failure, so I'm just going to not, not care anymore, All right? So I just want to highlight verse 12 and verse 15. Now, if their transgressions brings riches for the world and their failures riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Their sin led to salvation, but Paul's thinking about, but he's like, Paul, but Paul's saying, think about how much more could be done if they hadn't, right? So um, some of you know this, but um, I, play on, I play drums on the worship team. Um, and when I was first learning drums in the seventh grade, I, grew, I, I was growing up in the church in New York, and we had this like horrible drum set. And I'm like this new drummer. It's, the drum itself sounds horrible. I'm playing it. I'm not helping it sound any better. Right? This thing just sounds awful. And then my friend Paul comes in. And Paul is a like, legit professional drummer. He played like recordings for Mar Mariah Carey. He's like a studio drummer. Like, record re like recording artists come into a studio. They give him drum sheet music, which like, it looks like musical notes, but it's for drums. And he just like reads it. He's like, all right. And he just plays it. They record it. They edit it. Put it on the track. And that was his job. He comes to church one day, and he's like, oh, nice drum set. And I was like, no, actually, it's not a nice drum set. It's a pretty horrible drum set. So he's like, well, let's see, right? It's like this like, $200 drum set, which is a pretty cheap drum set as, as far as drum set goes. He comes in, he like taps on it, like tweaks it, and then he starts playing, and this thing just sounds like beautiful music. He's like, how in the world did this man make this horrible drum set sound this good. And then he had a concert. We went to his concert, and he had his good drum set, right? And he played that thing, and that thing was like next level good, right? The, the sound, the tone, the impact, the attack on the drum, it just, the crash on the cymbal, it was like, it was like a symphony, right? What, what Paul is saying is, just because you have a crappy drum set, doesn't mean that's what you need to use to make good music. Sure, a good drummer can make it sound good, but think about what a drummer can do with a really, really nice drum set. Right, so the idea is this. God can use anything in, his, in this world as an instrument to accomplish his mission, but, and there's a sense that like our brokenness, our sinfulness can still be used for God's good and greater good and glory, but think about what obedience and holiness and sanctification and steadfastness in the word of God that God can use to bring and accomplish his work in this world. So while God can use the things that are broken in this world to accomplish his mission, it's not an excuse for us to just meander around and not take holiness seriously. Second point, being in the family of God should draw others to God. So the way I'll say it is this, mission is a natural output of membership. So mission is the natural output of being, in the mem as a, being a member in the family of God. 
So if you read verse 11 again, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then verse 13 and 14, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that one of his great missions is that the more people see the goodness of God, the more Gentiles see how sweet Jesus is in the lives of these Gentiles, the more these Israelites will feel like they're missing out. That's why he says he wants to make Israelite, he wants to make Israel jealous. And that's why he says, I want to magnify my ministry. Is this idea that like the more he can pump his life, his energy to seeing the Gentiles come to know Jesus, the more Israelites can see how sweet Jesus really is. And so they might actually see the goodness of Jesus, that they might stop rejecting Jesus because they're seeing the goodness of Jesus being, being played out in the lives of these Gentiles. That they're somehow missing out. And I think for us, the takeaway is that being in the family of God should have some sort of magnetic component to it. The way that we love our neighbor, the way that we sacrifice for those in our church and in our community, the way that we can foster deep relationships among people who we have nothing in common with. And that I feel like is especially true in this church. Folks on the east side, on the west side, those who are rich or poor, those who are black or white or Asian, that the, the, these, this intersection of life seems like it doesn't make sense. But there's something rich here that I can't quite explain. What is that? The way that life is covered with peace when turmoil and suffering takes over. The way that we live our lives with integrity. There should be a sense of quality in our lives that creates a sense of curiosity for those who don't know Jesus. So that in that, when we have an opportunity to share the gospel, we can say, all of this is not me. All of this is because I've been saved by, by a Savior who loved me when I didn't deserve it, who has secured my hope when I had none. And just pointing and reflecting the gospel of Jesus and clearly articulating the truth of who Jesus is, who, what he's done, and what he's done for you and me in this life. Third, there should be a sense of humility in our salvation. A humility in our salvation. In verse 17 to 21, it says, Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them, and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Paul specifically says, do not boast and do not be arrogant. In this grafted in language, there's this idea that there is this original people of God, this beautiful olive tree. This tree was all Israelites. And because people of Israel rejected him, the branches were cut off. 
What he's, what, what he's saying is like, God is the active player who then took you, this thing that had nothing to do with this olive tree, and grafted you in. That God has called you into the family of God. That it is God's active working to do that. And he says, you stand by faith. Again, to say salvation is not by merit. Right? So now what basically Paul is saying is like, you can't all of a sudden be saved and be like, look at me. I'm a part of this olive tree now. What Paul is saying is like, no, you were literally picked off the ground and put into the tree. God did that for you. So you cannot now just say like, I have somehow earned my way into this tree. It's the exact mistake that the Israelites would be making. That they thought they were all good because they were, they were this ethnic people of Israel. So they rejected Jesus and, Jesus and God cut them off the tree. So what, what, God, what Paul is saying is like, you cannot boast. God has put you into the people of God. You stand by faith. And I love what Paul does in verse 30 and 30 through 32. He just sort of like levels the playing field. He says, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through that deep disobedience. So they too have now disobeyed God, resulting in mercy to you so that they may now also receive mercy. And in verse 32, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. He just flattens it. It's like no one is better than anyone else. We're all sinners. And God is choosing, choosing to have mercy on us all. So it's not about where you're from, what you did, your accomplishments. We are all sinners. We all disobeyed. But now God has mercy for us all. There's a sense of humility in knowing who you are as the people of God. And I love this, this secondary theme of working out your salvation. In verse 22, it says, Consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. If you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in. This idea of constantly working through humility in our salvation. Not that our standing with God is in flux, but this idea to consider. It says consider, to think through, to examine. And I think this is especially important because everything else in this world says that if you work hard enough, then you've earned it. Right? If you do the things you're supposed to do in your job, if you go above and beyond, if you you know, put in the extra hours, then you'll earn this promotion. If you come in as a private and you work hard enough in the military and you work and you work and you serve your country and you do it as best you can, you move up in rank. If you work hard enough at the gym and you exercise and you eat the right foods, then you'll see your results. Like everything in this life says, it's on you. It falls on you. The one thing in this world that says it's been done for you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is the only thing in this world that is speaking that language and saying that, we need to hold on to it. We need to work it out. We need to like stick to this truth. And we have to consider it over and over and over again. Because the message of the world is in, the, is in direct contrast. So consider God's kindness over and over and over again. Lest we, decide, we start to think that we've earned our way to God. And lastly, I love this. To close out the passage, seeing God's work unfold will result in praise. Mm -hmm. 
It's funny, right? Paul is making this crazy argument. He is making this discourse. These are the reasons why I think Israel will be saved in the long term. This is what God has done in the past. This is what God is doing now. And this is what God will do. And then as he's thinking through all that, he's just like, I just got to worship for a minute. And then he writes verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It's like he stops his argument. He's like, I just need to talk on, brag on God for a minute. The reason why I love this passage, I, I, I take, this is especially personal for me, for, in my experience of worship, the truest experiences of worship for me is not, not me saying, God, I will follow you forever. I will love you always. The truest expression of worship for me is, God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is why you're so good. And this is why you're worthy of praise. It's not about thinking about who I am and how I change and how I'm good and how I'm bad, all of that. It's really for me, true worship comes when I think about the work of Jesus in my life. I change. I have good days and bad days. And sometimes I don't feel like worshiping. But when I start to hear the truth of God, who he is, how he has loved me, though I did not deserve it, that he has died on the cross and taken away my sins, something changes in my heart. And I'm able to sing. I just want to give you a silly example of this. Um, but how many of you are familiar with like time hop or Instagram stories? Right? So like, what, what is time hop? It's like this, it's like you're scrolling Facebook and it's like, notice, reminds you like, hey, look at this photo from three years ago. And you're like, oh, that's cool. And so, like, parents will post pictures of, like, they're, like, four now, but pictures of when they were two. Like, they were so little, right? Or Instagram. So, Instagram stories, I have highlights. So I have two kids. And, like, my whole Instagram is just my family, right? Uh, and so, I have, like, these, like, running 15-second clips of SJ or Morgan. And for the ones that are particularly good, I, like, put them in highlights. And so, like, there's a collection of one for SJ, a collection of one for Morgan, collection of one when they're like playing well together, right? And every now and again, like Christine and I, we just watch them. We just go through these highlights, these 15 second clips of like when SJ was born, when SJ like first crawled, and when SJ took his first steps, and when SJ had his first word. And like, and you think about all the stuff that he's been through in his two, short two and a half years. Do you know what happens at the end of the highlights? I don't sit there and be like, that was good. It just doesn't happen. What happens is my heart just expands for my child. Like I see all of the things that he's been through and all his life experiences. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's grown so much. He is so loved. Like there's a sense of like, when I see what has happened in his life, my affection towards him grows, right? It doesn't leave me unchanged. Right? That's what happens here. That's what's happening here with Paul. Paul is articulating the plan of God for salvation for all of humanity and what he believes that God will do in the future. And what happens? He worships. 
He's like, I love this God. Who can give God advice? Who can know all of his thoughts? Like he ends up worshiping him because of all of the things that God has done and is doing and will do. And so that's my call to you. As you start thinking about this passage, as you read it, as you work through it, my encouragement would be to think about the works of God that he has done in your life and then broaden that scope. Think about the works of God that he has done in human history and let it move you to worship, to love and appreciate and worship Jesus more fondly. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you know all things. God, we can confess that sometimes this world feels confusing. It's hard to follow. It's hard to know what's going to happen. Sometimes tomorrow seems like an uncertainty. But God, you know all things. And Lord, thank you for those who are in the family of God that we stand not on a foundation of sand, on an ocean that can be washed away, by the waters and by the storms of this life, we stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. That your word is faithful, your word is true, you are unchanging, and that if we can bank on anything in this life, it is you. Thank you, Lord, that you carry us through when we cannot carry ourselves. And so I pray that as a result of that, that our lives would be changed, that we would love you more deeply, that we would serve you more wholly, and that we would be more and more set apart for you. Do this, we ask, we beg, and we pray. Amen.